ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati. And I'm Bernie Marini. We are hematology clinical pharmacists, and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd out about data. Welcome back, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. Bernie, it's been way too long, man. <laughs> way too long. Well, uh, one of us is now a father, uh, so that kept us uh, busy for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm on daddy daycare duty right now, so and <laughs> I, I would say it's it's definitely more challenging uh, than my day job, that's for sure. And like we we think that residency, you're sleep deprived, but uh, <laughs> there's no. Um, there's there's no duty hours. You're you're just always on duty. So you know, because I mean, you either have to be present or not, or you know, the kid dies if you you know if you're not around. So uh, yeah, it's not it's uh, it's definitely challenging. But uh, and it's my first, so um, it's a big learning curve. But I, I absolutely love it. I absolutely adore the little guy. Well, he's a he's a beautiful kid. Welcome to the to the land of fatherhood. It's a fun Thank place. You. Thank you. So if I say anything really stupid today, um, I'm just going to blame sleep deprivation. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I don't have an excuse then. <laughs> no, you don't. No. <laughs> Perfect. Well, what are you uh, What are you drinking? Yeah. I mean, so right now I'm not on dad duty. Uh, God bless my beautiful wife. Um, and so I'm, I am drinking and I'm drinking... Uh, I'm drinking a red wine. Uh, I'm drinking a Chianti. This is a 2018. That's... Uh, um, I'm drinking it right out of the bottle because I was too lazy to go grab a glass. So, but it, it's really good. It's it's been aged in American uh, uh, French oak for two years, and um, yeah, I mean that's all I have to say about it. It's it's good. It what are you looks, drinking? It looks really nice. I am actually drinking a beer from Boulevard Brewing Company, which is one of the breweries that Zara recommended from Kansas. Oh, I, I found this at uh, Total Wine in Ann Arbor. Nice and. This is a cinnamon bun ale. Cinnamon bun? Yeah. <laughs> Does it I love cinnamon buns. It it's it's like a sweet uh wow. almost like a it's got kind of a a, a sweet stout flavor. Nice. Uh, but yeah, it tastes like uh, it's got a little cinnamon bun, it's a little sweet and it's a uh, 9.5% alcohol. So uh love the potent stuff. It's potent and it's that got would put a me really, right to sleep. It's got a really cool can. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, Zara, for that recommendation. Excellent. You're drinking sweet. I'm drinking savory. Perfect. Good, good combination. All right, Bernie. So, uh, <clears throat> what's on the agenda today? What are we going to talk about? I, I am ill prepared, so uh, it's got to be <laughs> something I know what I'm talking about. Please. Uh, well, we figured we'd we'd go back to our roots to one of our favorite drugs, uh, asparaginase, and just really break down some basic pharmacology and some common clinical conundrums that we run into in clinical practice and how to manage them. And I, th I think what our plan is, is to do a number of different classes of drugs uh, in the upcoming months and try to try to use these as, as little educational topics, a little less data heavy. Sounds good to me. And so, I mean, episode two, we already talked a lot about asparaginase. Mm -hmm. why, why are we revisiting this? Why people are going to be bored, no, Bernie? Uh, I think you can't get enough asparaginase. And it was requested by uh, Papa Heem on Twitter that we cover asparaginase activity levels. And we are going to do that today. But any discussion of that, we have to talk about 
all of the other things that come up in clinical practice when you give this drug. And I Absolutely. think this is a, a key place for, for all clinicians to, to really make an impact. All right, so um, we're doing this mainly because of Papahim, uh, Aaron Goodman. <laughs> That's why we're, we're re-going after uh, asparaginase. And we owe him because uh, we visited him this past week um, in San Diego, and he bought us tacos. So this, this presentation is sponsored by Aaron Goodman's Tacos. Uh, what was the place called? Oscars in Pacific oh, Beach. It Delicious. was so good. So good. Those... Uh, um, that chorizo, chorizo shrimp, chorizo shrimp oh. the octopus tacos, delicious. Okay, anyway, so Bernie, <laughs> asparaginase. We already talked about the mechanism, but why don't you give us a brief overview? Yeah, just just brief overview. Uh, so asparaginase, as the name implies, is an enzyme that cleaves asparagine to aspartic acid and ammonia. And the reason why that's important is ALL cells lack asparagine synthetase. So for them, asparagine is a, an essential amino acid so by depleting asparagine, we're essentially starving our ALL cells and causing apoptosis. And this is important um, when we talk about how we measure activity levels and some of the toxicities that occur, because a lot of these toxicities can be traced back to uh, decreasing protein synthesis. And a lot of our cellular processes that rely on a lot of protein synthesis are heavily affected. Nice. And we have multiple asparaginase products. The first one was developed, what, back in the 1960s or so, um, at least commercially. We, we mm -hmm. know it back from like 1922 when we were mm -hmm. using it in guinea pigs, but not us personally, but um, Clemente. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the native E. coli was your first commercially available one. It had issues, uh, the um, immunogenicity and the short half-life. So we pegylated the drug, um, still uh, based off of the E. coli platform. So PEG asparaginase increased the half-life, decreased the immunogenicity. And then we came out with another pegylated version, CalPEG asparaginase, which has an even uh, more tighter link of the, the pegylation to the asparaginase and will then allow the drug to not be cleared as quickly. So the half-life's even longer with CalPEG. So roughly um, depletion with PEG asparaginase, complete asparagine depletion, probably what would you say like three to four-ish weeks yeah. if you're giving 2,500 units per meter squared without a cap. Mm -hmm. CalPEG, you're pushing, how long do you think you would deplete somebody completely? Around 42-ish days. That's a long time. That's a long so <laughs> half-life much longer. <laughs> Um, but it doesn't reduce the immunogenicity to the drug any further than PEG. I think ideally we would have hoped that it would have, um, but unfortunately it, it, it didn't. So, so those are all your E. coli-based, and then we've got our Erwinia-based. And there are multiple products throughout the, the, the world, but in the United States, we no longer really have Erwinia uh, or Erwinase asparaginase. We've got Rylase, which again we talked about on uh, episode two. So those are all of our asparaginase. That's a so phenomenal summary. <laughs> but I'm now that we to... have now that we have all these new products, people don't have a lot of experience with some of these new products. Uh uh. And I uh, think it's... I think you have to know how to use them. And I think this is where the toxicity management comes into play, especially in using these drugs in AYAs in adolescent young adults and mm -hmm. in adult patients, where if you're depleting something for 42 days, 
you're going to run into some problems. Yep. And I, I guess that's another important point that you bring up. And another reason why I think you probably want to talk about this in addition to Aaron Goodman's request is that uh, peg asparaginase is going to be voluntarily removed from the market for kids and adolescents up to the age of 21-ish. So you're no longer be able to use peg asparaginase in the United States. And so it's going to be a mandated switch to CalPEG in all those patients. Um, and so, again, with that longer uh, depletion, we're going to have to be very careful, uh, especially for our older adolescent patients. So um, true. And so I think now is a perfect time to reiterate how we, what toxicities we should be expecting and what, how, how to manage some of the toxicities. Yeah. So let's go, let's go through some of these. So if you had to pick one toxicity that you're most worried about when giving pegasparaginase, what would that be? Uh, there's a lot of them. I know. <laughs> it's a lot, right? Oh, uh, it's sort of like the, when I listed out, like we played uh, Chemo Jeopardy the other day to teach the fellows. And it was like, this drug causes hepatotoxicity, thrombosis, pancreatitis, bleeding, allergic reactions. It was like, <laughs> who would ever use this drug? <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Yeah, it's like an infomercial where you just like, you have to say it all very, very quickly and it's still yeah. gonna last like 30 seconds of toxicity. So I guess before we get into that, look, so if it's so toxic, why do we even <laughs> use this drug, Bernie? That's, that's a good point, that's a good point. Um, you know, I think this comes back to that uh, AYA data we talked about previously that suggests that giving people um, regimens, pediatric-inspired regimens that emphasize asparaginase depletion have better outcomes than when we give them adult regimens that have less asparagine depletion. But we mm -hmm. talked about how shitty that data is. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's retrospective comparisons or single-arm studies compared to historical controls. So we rag on a lot of data with some new therapies, but you know, this data is not so strong either. Mm -hmm. We're always screaming randomized controlled trial, good comparator <laughs> arms. This has none of the above here. Nope. Um, but you know, I think what it, I, the, you have to put things into context as well. Yeah. Like for the most part, ALL, um, at least upfront has been the treatment has been designed based off of all phase two studies of just adding stuff and, you know, comparing it to historical control and just building on and hoping that we're improving outcomes. And I think the story for asparaginase is that virtually all cooperative groups, not only in the U.S., but across the world, have incorporated this drug uh, since the beginning of ALL. And again, go back to episode three, where we talk about this, mm -hmm. versus the other regimen that doesn't, uh, hyper-CVAD, that regimen has only really been published by one group. Uh, so it's a single center, barely phase two data. Um, and so I think, yes, we don't have a randomized controlled trial. I have no idea if uh, pediatric-inspired regimens are 100% more effective than hyper-CVAD uh, because we don't have a randomized controlled trial. But the cumulative uh, data, um, you kind of stuck to, because it's, it's part of everybody else's regimen. So, um, yeah. And then now with all of our novel therapies, you have to also beg the question of, do you really need asparaginase? Can you just use blinitumumab and inotuzumab and spend multi-million dollars on a regimen? Maybe in the U.S., but across the world, uh, probably mm -hmm. not. So, yeah, yeah, open question of whether it truly is any better. It's, it's definitely an open question. But I'll also point out that asparaginase is not, uh, not cheap anymore either. Uh, but that's it's probably true. a topic for... For a different day 
So let's let's go through some of these toxicities then. So let's say you know you give a patient, let's say you have a 25 year old patient, and you start them on 10403, and their bilirubin climbs to let's say 11. Mm-hmm. How would you manage this in practice? Um, well, I would have to stop all of their other drugs, um, <laughs> and their chemotherapy for the most part, except for you know steroids are fine. Um, but for the most part, you know the vincristine now needs to be held, and patients are all their therapy needs to be held until their bilirubin comes back to a reasonable number. I would say you know likely probably a bilirubin of two or so. So the the peg I would definitely hold and continue to hold. Now, how do you treat that? Um, for the most part, it's just a tincture of time, unfortunately, <laughs> where you just watch it go up and up and up and up, and then you hope that it comes down, and virtually all cases will come down. Um, but the question is, how long is it going to take for that bilirubin to come back to normal? Uh, certainly, if you're giving uh, a drug that depletes asparagine for longer and longer and longer, it's going to take longer and longer and longer for your bilirubin to get better. And so we've had patients where their bilirubins have skyrocketed to 30, 40, and it's taken two, three months for their bilirubin to come back to normal. Um, And so I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why we advocate for lower doses so that Mm -hmm. you don't come into the situation of a a prolonged bilirubin that just keeps going up and up and, and staying up there for a while. Um, so besides the tincture of time, there's not really any great data of how to manage this. Um, some bad data on levocarnitine, mm-hmm. which I don't know that it actually works. There is a randomized control. Tr- I think it's randomized. There is a study that's um, either ongoing. ongoing or going yep. to start at some point. I think COG is involved, mm-hmm. and they're going to try to help us sort this out. Because uh, it's definitely something that we want to sort out, but I'm not convinced L-carnitine is going to be the thing. Do we add L-carnitine? Yes, because it's benign. It's relatively cheap. Um, but you have to use it IV, right? We usually use, what, 50? 50 mix per keg, usually Q6. Divide in, yep. Um, you can't get and, that orally. <laughs> no, you can't. You No, the bioavailability. It's not bioavailable. It's impossible. <laughs> Yeah, so so yeah, they essentially have to be admitted for, uh, for the proper doses of levocarnitine, uh, which is not ideal. We throw on ursodile, right, Bernie? But oh, good old black bear bile. <laughs> <laughs> is it doing anything? Probably not. It's a lot of just hoping and praying and using you know things that are relatively cheap. But it, it's really the time. So, so probably, I guess, I guess the best way to to prevent it is to avoid it in the first place, because mm-hmm. management strategies are kind of non-existent at this point. Yep. So how would you how would you avoid it, Bernie? How do you prevent this from happening? And I, I think this is an area where you're going to pick on me because the data is also uh, pretty crappy. But I think, you know, we've learned over the years that, and, and we know this, asparaginase is a pediatric drug, right? We, we developed this drug for pediatric patients. We never figured out the appropriate dro- dose of this drug. And we just extrapolated this to adults. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that the, the standard dose in, in the pediatric trials is just way too high for adult patients. If you give an adult patient 2,000 units per meter squared uncapped or 2,500 units per meter squared uncapped, um, as evidenced in the 10403 trial where they saw exorbitant rates of hepatotoxicity in trial-eligible AYA patients, 
I think the dose is too high. So the first thing that we generally do is anybody with risk factors for hepatotoxicity. So older patients or patients that have high BSAs or BMIs, those that are obese, they tend to be at higher risk for hepatotoxicity and we'll give them lower doses. So Bernie, what, uh, so for all comers, let's say you had a 28 year old patient has absolutely no comorbidities and they come to your service, what dose of PEG would you give them? 3750 capped. Capped, right? And that's gonna give you how many weeks of asparagine depletion? About three to four weeks. Yeah, that is that is more than sufficient, yeah. right? Especially if, if you're very comfortable switching to Rowinia, um, that's only a two-week-ish uh, duration of depletion, right? So we're, we're still getting more with 3750 We're getting from one, to two weeks, one to two weeks longer than we need to yep. from a pharmacodynamic perspective. We're giving too much drug. And if you look at cooperative groups that use lower doses, um, like the UK, uh, the Nordic, the Dutch, they give 1,000 units per meter squared. Or in some cases with TDM, they'll give even lower doses. Mm-hmm. And their outcomes don't look any worse than no. COG trials Potentially or better. than adult trials. Potentially better. Potentially better. Yep. So then what about a patient that comes in with a high BSA, a morbidly obese patient? What dose are you using for that patient? So morbidly obese, I use 1,000 units per meter squared typically. Um, but I think it's an, it's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have an older patient, with a, a elevated BSA, multiple risk factors for hepatotoxicity, I'd even consider giving them a slightly lower dose. You mm-hmm. can always give more asparaginase if you give TDM and aim for that two weeks of depletion like we do with Erwinia. But once it's in and they have hepatotoxicity, you can't take it back. It's in there. Yep. And, and for some patients, maybe even omit it in induction. Induction is the highest risk period for toxicities, especially hepatotoxicity. Um, and so you, you potentially, based off of the regimen that you're using, you could just completely omit it from induction and then get them through the highest risk period and get them you know, out of induction and then add it on later. Yeah. Or like to Bernie's point, you could do the 500 trial dose to j- just test the waters. Yeah. See if that patient is going to be at risk. Because if you do have some toxicities, the toxicities should only last for about a week or so. But if you give 2,500 no cap, toxicities are you're likely screwed. going to lad, last for, yeah, you're, you are screwed for, you know, a month, two months, maybe even longer. And, th- and that's something, you know, the point you brought up earlier about delaying it or omitting it. You know, that's something that we didn't know off the bat, right? We learned that from... Dan Dewar and from Dr. Patrick Burke here at the University of Michigan, where, you know, in their protocol, they were delaying the PEG till day 15. You mm-hmm. know, in, in a lot of these regimens, like 10403, like the original Larson, they give it on day four, which is like the worst possible time to give PEG asparaginase. Yep. You know, this is when patients are neutropenic, um, they're at risk for hepatic injury from septic events and all the other things that happen in these patients. It's near the time of the anthracycline. So they separate them completely. And they saw fairly good tolerability of high-dose pegasparaginase, even in some older patients. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the UK, um, some of the UK protocols used to give a day four and then a later dose, right? Like a day 18 dose in those patients. And they found that that early dose was too toxic. They omitted that early dose and they saw similar efficacy, but significantly reduced toxicity just by delaying their administration of pegasparaginase. Mm-hmm. 
So patients with risk factors, uh, I, I would say age is probably the strongest of strong risk factors for hepatotoxicity. Would you agree? Totally agree. And then, uh, and then obviously then obesity, how you define this is tricky and the, how the literature is defining is kind of all over the place. We've picked a BSA of two in adults. COG recently presented something at ASCO that they used a BSA of 1.5, but found that it was only significant if they were also uh, obese. So they had to have a high BMI plus a high BSA. Dana-Farber yeah. showed a high BSA greater than two, but BMI was not correlative. So it's it's really all over the place, which isn't like ideal when we're trying to tell you, hey, this is clear cut, you should do this. Um, we have to be honest, the literature is kind of all over the place. But it's it's pretty clear that age and uh, obesity, uh, to me, how, how you define that, I have no yep. idea perfectly, but, but they are risk factors. Other risk factors are Hispanic uh, ethnicity. Um, and then there are some um, genetic polymorphisms that can predispose mm -hmm. certain patients, but we're not testing for these things. Uh, so we, we don't know until, you know, after the fact. Completely agree. That's a, okay, that's so a this, great summary. This patient, Bernie, uh, mm -hmm. this Billy Rubin, I think you said went to 12, let's say it continued to go up, it went to 25. Uh, and now their Billy Rubin is now normal. They're uh, presenting for course two of 10403. Mm -hmm. They get their cytoxin, <laughs> they're doing well. And then, you know, here comes another dose of pegasparaginase. Um, do you omit the asparaginase because of that uh, horrific hepatotoxicity that occurred during induction? Uh, would you do anything differently? How are you approaching this? I think that's an excellent question. I would continue. Um, I think it brings up what you pointed out earlier, that in induction, the risk of hepatotoxicity is the highest. Um, and I know some centers, including uh, Dr. Burke, when he was at uh, MSK, have presented data that upon rechallenge, patients can be rechallenged with asparaginase without hepatotoxicity the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time around. It is the highest during induction when you have all of these other risk factors. Now, this is where I would give a lower dose. If I pounded Agreed. someone with a full 3750 dose, this is where I'm dropping it down to a thousand, even lower, and checking levels to see if they can still get 14 days of depletion out of a lower dose, but mitigate those risks for toxicities. Totally agree. And I think there are definitely differences of opinion on this. Mm -hmm. And some would say, you know what, just give the full dose. Um, it, and, and based off of, you know, the data yep. that you just quoted, Dan Dewars and Patrick Burks, um, they gave the, the full, mm -hmm. dose full dose upon rechallenge. And, you know, not everybody um, had hepatotoxicity. I think majority did well, but there's still some that had a recurrence. Um, yeah. So for that only, reason, I, I would reduce. Yeah. The only caveat with all this data is, um, people who you re-challenge tend to be the fitter patients yeah. who probably were going to do better than those that you, you didn't re-challenge. You self-selected for the, the better patients. 100% um, agree. With we're a drug guilty like of this too. 100% agree. I mean, I, I guess our philosophy is with a drug like asparaginase, you have to really be gentle and you got to mm -hmm. respect it. And so we're, yeah. we always err on the side of less is potentially more. Um, I think the risk of of you know relapse is is obviously high in adult but is it going to be that much higher by underdosing it a little bit and i don't think we're underdosing it but let's say you were mm -hmm. i don't think i think the risk of toxicity is much 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 higher than the risk of a relapse so that's why yep. we we err on the side of lower respect the asparaginase <laughs> it's like the aminoglycosides of 
of uh, oncology. Yep. All right, so that's hepatotoxicity. Anything else, um, or I can I give you a case? I think that's pretty good for, for hepatotoxicity, yeah. Okay. So what if you had a patient with a, uh, a CNS thrombosis, Bernie? How are you going to manage this? And, and tell, talk to me about thrombosis with asparaginase. So, I mean, I think we have to go back to the mechanism and why this is happening to kind of understand this drug. Uh, so I mentioned earlier, asparaginase... Um, you know, cleaves asparagine to aspartic acid and ammonia. This really affects the coagulation cascade. So it depletes your natural anticoagulants and your clotting factors. So you basically induce a state of DIC in these patients, which mm-hmm. can be very problematic. And they tend to clot more than they tend to bleed. And I think um, for, for our practice, one of the things that comes up and one of the um, kind of to take a little side tangent here, one of the questions is how do you prevent these thromboses and these bleeding events from happening? And obviously we measure DIC labs, we measure fibrinogen. And every center has a little bit of a different strategy for how they mitigate this risk. Um, some centers give, um, they give uh, anticoagulant prophylaxis to these patients um, to try to prevent thrombosis. Some centers will check antithrombin levels and replace antithrombin because you're also um, reducing uh, AT3 levels. Some centers will simply replace fibrinogen using cryoprecipitate and other methods. Every center has a unique strategy, and there simply lacks comparative data to say what is the right approach to avoid this in these patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because of the lack of data, I think a lot of um, experts would also recommend don't even check fibrinogen. Don't check antithrombin. Ch- uh, check nothing. Ignore it all. Just let your patient go on their merry old way. And if they bleed, treat the bleed when it happens. Or if they clot, treat the clot if it happens. And just ignore all the labs altogether. Um, and, you know, that's, um, for the most part, our pediatric uh, colleagues' approach, at least what we've spoken to them about, is just sort of, you know, I don't know what the right term is, but it's, you know... It's a laissez-faire approach. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and, and, and that it has been the standard of care it's in true. PEDS since the beginning of time. That uh, makes us very uneasy, though. Sure. Um, that's why it makes us feel better that we're monitoring all these labs and makes us feel better that if we see a fibrinogen drop below, say, 70 or 50, uh, that we're doing something about it. But I agree with you. There's no randomized controlled trial data to say that replacing any of this stuff uh, is helpful. I think the one thing that I would say that I I feel pretty strongly not to do is replacing uh, antithrombin because I agree. we definitely don't have data, and it's very cumbersome to 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 draw and, and calculate, and it's super expensive. Um, and so, without data supporting that it's going to reduce bleeding or clotting, I would say just don't do it. Um, so Bernie, what do, what do we do at our institution? Not that this is the right way at all. Yeah. So in general, our philosophy is these patients tend to clot more than bleed. So normally when you have DIC, you replace fibrinogen with cryoprecipitate. The problem with replacing cryoprecipitate is it just contains clotting factors. It just has all clotting factors. There's no anticoagulants in cryoprecipitate. So what we do at Michigan is we let it drop all the way down to 70, and that's where we'll replace cryo, 
at this time, we also replace FFP here too. And that's to give patients a balance between natural anticoagulants and FFP and cryoprecipitate. But Bernie, there's asparagine in... <laughs> And FFP. Yeah. And she's worried about like I'm, feeding the cancer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like when patients try to adopt like no sugar diets and things to not feed their <laughs> cancer. It's like the same logic yep. we, we make fun of people about. Um, I, I, there is asparagine in everything. It's in drugs. It's in our diet. You would basically have to starve patients to make sure they get no asparagine. And that pegasparaginase is still in their system. Mm -hmm. So as soon as that asparagine enters their body... It's cleaved to aspartic yeah. acid and ammonia. Yeah. But so, you read it in papers all the know, time of don't give FFP, don't give FFP. It has asparagine. You're essentially giving a, you know, a, a neutralizing agent to your asparaginase. So yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, I think it's, it's a farce. It's a okay, farce. So, okay. So that's, that's kind of, well, I guess the other thing to consider with prevention is would you give DVT prophylaxis or would you give full dose anticoagulation to a patient to prevent a clot, um, and if so, or even if not, what agents have been considered or would you consider? I, I don't give anything. <laughs> I think um, I would give my normal DVT prophylaxis that I give hospitalized patients. Yep. But when their platelets drop below 50 or 30,000 or whatever yep. your favorite cutoff is, I would hold that. I think the bleed risk outweighs the prevention of thrombosis. And there's there's this theoretical concern that giving agents like Lovenox and, and heparin products aren't going to work because of the depletion of antithrombin. Has that borne out clinically? No. And so there's a lot of interest in giving DOAX because they would bypass that need for antithrombin to catalyze the reaction. I, I think it's a lot of hand-waving, and I don't think mm -hmm. any of the prophylactic data is convincing enough for me mm -hmm. to give prophylaxis at this time. Yep, no, totally agree. Um, so Dana-Farber has some data, Princess Margaret, um, Profi, no Profi, looking at previous um, data, historical controls, doesn't seem as though uh, prophylaxis prevents the clots. Um, maybe it's because they use, you know, Lovenox, maybe they use too low of doses. Um, but interestingly, when they did find a reduction in clots, um, it was also, at the same time that they reduced their doses of asparaginase. So was it the the DVT prophylaxis yeah. or full treatment, or was it reducing the doses? I would say it's it was probably reducing the doses, but not no clear evidence that giving full-dose anticoagulation or DVT prophylaxis will prevent these clots from happening. Certainly a risk of bleeding in a patient that's already at mm -hmm. risk for, for bleeding. Um, just because they have ALL, they probably have thrombocytopenia, and, and maybe the asparaginase could help contribute to a bleed too. I had thought the COG was, I, I thought there was a trial looking at uh, rivaroxaban. I remember I went to a COG meeting many, many years ago and they talked about it. Um, hmm. But I don't think I've seen the results or seen that pan out. Mm -hmm. um, so what a, what an easy thing to study. Randomized yep. trial of prophylaxis. Yep. Okay. So patient has a uh, central line DVT. Uh, you pull out the pick, whatever you give anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. um, do you rechallenge that patient with asparaginase? I, I do. I think low grade clots, uh, I would rechallenge that patient with asparaginase. When you run into the CNS thromboses and the CNS, that's going to be my next question. 
That's where I hesitate in giving asparaginase. That's where I would hold until it is resolved. I, I just think coming back from a catastrophic CNS bleed or thrombosis is, I mean, these can be life ending events and completely mm-hmm. morbid events. Um, where and that's I think pretty much that's pretty much in line with guidelines yeah. of you know if if it was a high grade but they had all symptom resolution, sure. then they can rechallenge. I I think again this is all just expert opinion, uh, and so you have to think about in the context of your patient of is giving them more doses of asparaginase really going to reduce their risk of relapse? Is it like their last dose? Does it really matter? I think you got to really think about it in the context of their trial. Is the patient, you know, MRD positive and you're about to just give them blinitumumab or they're on their way to transplant? Everything's got to be in the context of, of the clinical setting before just saying, oh, yeah, I would rechallenge them because <laughs> of this. You know, I'm not worried about that toxicity. That's a phenomenal way to put it. It's always about the context. Like it, these black and white recommendations are are never useful in clinical practice, and that's why that's why we talk about it. That's why we have uh, that's why we have pharmacists, right? Yep. Uh, perfect. So let me let me bring up another case then. So let's say yeah. um, you have a patient you give pegasparaginase to. Let's say it's their uh, maybe third dose, and um, they develop some. Uh, maybe a slight abdominal pain, maybe it's mucositis, maybe it's something else. Uh, we check in amylase and lipase and it is elevated. All right. How so do you, you got... manage this? <laughs> so you have a patient with, with symptoms. No, no radiographic findings, but mm-hmm. elevated amylase lipase. Mm-hmm. So I think based up, so the elevation of amylase lipase in, in an asymptomatic patient mm-hmm. doesn't really worry me all that much. Mm-hmm. And I would watch it closely, uh, and but continue the asparaginase unless it's like through the roof. Um, but that usually that usually doesn't happen. If they're through the roof, they likely have a symptomatic patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you start adding in symptoms, um, that is worrisome to me. Whether or not they have a pseudocyst uh, or any radiographic findings, I still think that symptoms plus uh, and you've ruled out all their causes of the abdominal symptoms, mm-hmm. but that to me requires a hold and a th- very thoughtful uh, discussion on the risk versus benefit in the future. Um, and I, I acknowledge that this is um, not really, again, evidence-based, um, but I think the risk of pancreatitis, um, if you just continue the drug uh, it's likely going to get worse. I think there's quite a bit of data that pancreatitis is associated with more longer depletion. So when you look at regimens mm-hmm. like the Dana-Farber uh, that has 30 weeks of depletion, you look at the Nordic group that has weeks upon weeks of depletion, the Dutch group weeks upon weeks, versus COG regimens, right, or BFM-based mm-hmm. backbones, the risk of pancreatitis is much less in CLGB, COG regimens than all those other regimens. Um, and so I think you, if you have a patient that's sitting there screaming, hey, I'm about to have pancreatitis, I don't think that giving more uh, at that time is the right answer. I would say go with, uh, allow more of an intermittent approach of have, have the drug be off um, and then reintroduce it in the future if their symptoms resolve very quickly, uh, there's no radiographic findings, um, and again, think about the risk versus benefit. Now, contrast to that, if a patient walks in with life-threatening 
a pancreatitis, has a pseudocyst, that's a patient where I absolutely would not re-challenge mm-hmm. uh, with, with asparaginase. Uh, Bernie, what what are your thoughts on that case? No, I, I completely agree. And I think this is almost the same uh, discussion you had brought up with, with the thrombotic case. It's yeah. all about context, right? If you've got one or two doses left and it was a severe pancreatitis, why why rechallenge that patient? Yeah. But if it's, you know, maybe their amylase lipase are elevated, we happen to get a, you know, abdominal CT and, oh, there's something there. Um you know, maybe that's a patient where if they're on their first dose or something, we think about re-challenging later. And there is some data, um, there's some data uh, from the Ponte de Legno working group Mm -hmm. and some from the, I think the NOFO group as well, um, looking at risk of pancreatitis upon re-challenge. And these aren't the exact Atlanta criteria that some people use, but in general, it recurs in about half of patients. So you yep. kind of have to decide. And, and, and a lot of the time, half the time, it was severe pancreatitis. So right. are you okay with a 50-50 roll of the dice that your patient's going to develop pancreatitis again? So you have to weigh that versus do they need more asparaginase therapy? Yep. And, you know, the interesting thing about that paper also was that um, severe pancreatitis did not predict right. for right. recurrence. So you could have a you patient have with a mild... Rate. Yep, yep. Pancreatitis and have recurrence, <laughs> have a fifty percent chance of recurrence, and it could, you know, also and be a fifty percent chance of it being severe. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so yeah, high grade. Uh, no, uh, it's a no go. Um, yeah. For for lower grade, it's a thoughtful discussion. Most of the time, we're going to rechallenge grade one or two. And I think what's also unique when you look at across the board of of from guidelines is some will use the CTCA criteria Mm -hmm. some will use um you know the criteria that bernie mentioned atlanta criteria or there's the ponte de legno criteria yep Um, yep so there's lots of different criteria out there um i i personally like more of like just a clinical criteria not not you know completely ctcae i like to see um you know quick resolution Mm-hmm. of the pancreatitis. So, you know, if, if their pancreatitis lasts for more than three or four days, even if it's mild, and even though it was a grade, say, two, that's not a patient that I'm very excited to, to re-challenge. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if let's say it was, a, you know, a grade two or three and symptoms resolved rather quickly, um, no pseudocyst, um, that's a patient that I think I would I would consider re-challenging. So, so that's all kind of re-challenge. What about in the face of pancreatitis? You have a patient sitting in front of you. Um, how do you treat this patient? Is it any different than the general population, how we treat pancreatitis? No. I think it's exactly <laughs> the same. It's kind yeah. of like our discussion with hepatotoxicity, tincture yep. of time, supportive care. That's yep. it. Yep. So... Uh, you know, some data, maybe L-carnitine, octreotitis, <laughs> like the general population. But I, I don't know that any of this stuff works. I think one important point is uh, monitor the triglycerides, right? A, a, a risk factor for pancreatitis could have been mm-hmm. hypertriglyceridemia. And so you're going to want to manage the hypertriglyceridemia. Um, how do you, how Bernie, do you manage how, how do you manage? Oh, oh you, okay. you want me to? Sure. I, I mean, I use the, the fibrates. I think the fibrates have mm-hmm. a fair amount of data. They're well tolerated with minimal toxicities, so I I typically use you know phenofibrate. Right, Bernie, let me 
let me throw you a curveball here. Uh-oh. Let's say let's say you have a patient that has um, hypertriglyceridemia and their triglycerides are um, say six thousand. Um, so I don't, I don't know like millimoles per milliliter for the international people, but that's insanely high, insanely high to a point that the patient's blood is lipemic. You, you pull out their blood and it's not red anymore. It is literally white. That's how lipemic they are because they're triglycerides. these patients. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. Agree. Agree completely. I would, I would, I would phoresis. Well, what if, Mm -hmm. what if you don't have phoresis at your institution? What what are you going to (laughs) do? Fibrates, statins. All of it, fish oils, niacin. niacin. You know what? You know what is never talked about in any of our pancreatitis guidelines for asparaginase, but it is the standard of care in general population is insulin. Yeah, we we never talk about that in any guidelines, but that's literally the standard of care for for pancreatitis, hyper, uh, hypertriglyceridemia, and insulin is probably the fastest at bringing down your triglycerides more than, you know, niacin and fish oil. Like, come on, fish oils. <laughs> yeah, not great. So, but anyways, I think, I think it's something to, to think about, um, even though it's not in all of our pegasparagenase guidelines, is, you know, consider, uh, consider insulin to bring things down quicker. So, so that's oh. pancreatitis. Can, can, I throw, can I throw another curveball at you? Uh, remember, I'm so, sleep deprived, Bernie. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> but yeah, throw I, it, throw it. I am a physician, and uh, you know, I, I want the toxicities of asparaginase to go away quickly, right? Uh, I had a patient who had pancreatitis or hepatotoxicity before, so I want to give Erwinia instead of pegasparaginase. What do you think oh. about that idea? No, absolutely not. And we talk about this on <laughs> on episode two, so. If you didn't listen to episode two, go back and listen to it. But if I'll, here's here's the the spoiler alert. No, I would not use uh, Erwinia. I would not ask to import native E. coli into the United States. I would not use. I don't think you need to necessarily use a shorter acting drug uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, you can just use lower doses of your pegylated asparaginase, a thousand mm-hmm. five hundred, um, to get that same. Uh, very short half-life that you're wanting to get with your um, your Erwinia for a fraction of the cost. Um, not, also, not, yeah, go ahead. The the problem with with the toxicities is most of the toxicities of asparaginase don't happen within the first two weeks, especially pancreatitis. Like you're looking at a median time of like you know four or five weeks in in many studies. Um, or multiple doses, and so, you know, if if you're if you give your two weeks of Erwinia, um, you might not see the toxicities of pancreatitis or hepatotoxicity until a week later. Well, you're not giving any more Erwinia, so you can't like just take it back. You can't stop the Erwinia. You already gave it all, and so I I am strongly strongly disagree with giving shorter acting Erwinia to try to mitigate the the toxicities just give lower doses of peg i thousand percent agree <laughs> that's why i threw it out there i think we we hear this though and i think people All also don't realize like it's possible some of these things are related to high peak concentrations there's in vitro data that pancreatitis may be related to the ammonia load um mm-hmm. in the urea cycle so 
giving super high peaks like you see with Erwinia might not be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I also totally. think the problem with, and this is for our, our learners out there, comparing rates of these toxicities in patients who get Erwinia to patients who get the frontline pegasparaginase, whatever product it is, they're going to be lower with the second line product, right? Because anybody who had hepatotoxicity, pancreatitis, horrible tolerability, they're pulled off the study, right? So you have selection bias for who gets second line drug versus who has first line product. So comparing them is completely inappropriate. 100%. And the only randomized controlled trial that I'm aware of is from Dana-Farber, where they compared native to Erwinia and Erwinia had less toxicities, but they also underdosed Erwinia and the relapse free survival was also worse with Erwinia. Again, not that I think um, necessarily that Erwinia is inferior or has less toxicities. It's just the fact that they underdose their Erwinia. They're given it twice a week instead of three times a week. You're not comparing so, apples to oranges. It, you are definitely comparing apples to oranges. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we, you, you were uh, hinting a little bit about activity levels, Bernie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you just opened up a can of worms. I now did. you have to discuss everything about activity levels, therapeutic drug monitoring, uh, whether they're associated with toxicities, whether they're associated with efficacies, how do we use them? What do the drug, what do the, the activity levels mean? When do we get them? We just, let's just finish off this discussion with that and then call it a night. Let's do it. So uh, just a quick recap of um, allergic reactions with asparaginase. There's three main types of allergic reactions. You have your true antibody-mediated hypersensitivity reactions. You have your non-antibody-mediated infusion-related reactions, which can be mediated by other cells, other cytokines. And then you have your ammonia-related reactions from the production of ammonia that can make people feel like shit. Symptom-wise, a lot of the symptoms overlap, so it's hard to tell whether it's antibody-mediated or not. And so the only way to tell is to check Um, activity levels to tell whether this patient still has activity or whether an antibody has formed to the drug, preventing its activity and clearing it more rapidly. So um, going back to that, I think one of the things that we have to discuss is what level of asparaginase activity is associated with asparagine depletion. And this data goes all the way back to the 1980s to a study by uh, Riccardi and colleagues in 1981. And they looked at like a handful of patients, human patients, and like a handful of rhesus monkeys. And they correlated asparaginase activity levels (laughs) with disappearance of asparagine in the serum and the CSF. And I think it was like 11 people total. Mm -hmm. And they determined that activity levels above 0.1 were acquired as clear asparagine from both the serum and the CSF of patients. So this became the historical standard of 0.1. It so was Bernie, su- yeah. Bernie you, you hate surrogate markers. Why are we <laughs> using a surrogate marker like asparaginase activity level? Why don't we just measure asparagine in clinical practice? Then you would know for sure if you're completely asparagine depleted, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, and the problem with using asparagine concentrations is you get daily fluctuations, Mm -hmm. right? If your patient eats, if they take a certain medication that has asparagine in it, there's huge daily fluctuations. So measuring asparagine concentrations is not necessarily reliable. You can also have ex vivo cleavage of asparagine in the sample, 
which can lead to falsely low levels. Yeah, so in clinical practice, very challenging. In the research setting is, is still yeah. challenging to measure asparagine, but it's a bit more doable. But we would definitely screw it up in, in yeah. real life. And, and there's another way we could measure antibodies, right? Because we, we're trying to detect whether the drug has an antibody that is formed that is clearing it. So why, why don't we just do that? Well, I think, so there are a number of antibodies that can form IgG, IgM, IgE. Um, and just because an antibody has formed does not necessarily mean that one, the patient is going to or has had an allergic reaction. And two, just because an antibody has formed does not mean that the drug is no longer working. Correct. Um, they don't necessarily, they're not always neutralizing antibody. So antibody could be present and the drug could still be working. And so if you say, hey, I have an antibody um, and you just stop their drug, it's very possible that you stop the drug that was still working. And so I think the only way that you can truly test whether or not asparaginase is working is to use a test that is testing whether or not your asparaginase is working. And so, you know, I, I ragged on you about a surrogate marker, but I do think that this is the best marker uh, is an asparaginase activity level because yep. it's literally telling you what is your asparaginase activity. You're measuring the enzymatic activity. You're taking a sample that has a known quantity of asparaginase or a, an unknown quantity of asparaginase. You're putting it on a known quantity of asparagine to lead to that reaction, uh, which produces a color change. So we can measure how much enzymatic activity is present in a given sample. So our historical mm -hmm. was 0.1. That was subsequently confirmed in the CCG 1961 study um, by Panosian and colleagues. And so 0.1 mm -hmm. was the standard for a while. Yep. And, and then that changed, right? When we had pegasparaginase, we had other data suggesting you needed even higher levels for asparagine depletion. And so Dan Dewar, his data um, using pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic um, analyses determined that you needed a level of 0.2 to achieve more than 90% uh, asparagine deamination. So that's now double than what our historical target mm -hmm. was. And then the same group that suggested the level should be 0.1, CCG, decided that maybe glutamine depletion was important because certain cells can convert um, glutamine back to asparagine and pot potentially that was an area of resistance. And so to achieve both glutamine depletion and asparagine depletion, you needed a level of 0.4 as your optimal level. That's so now four, four times, times higher. the historical target. And then we turned this completely on its head um, around 2014-2015, the AALL07P4 study came out, which suggested that even patients with levels below 0.1 still had asparagine depletion. And it went down to even as low as 0.03 something, 0.02, and so they suggested a cutoff of 0.05, so half of our normal level. Mm -hmm. And that was the largest study really mm -hmm. ever conducted of any PKPD of pegasparaginase, right? Mm -hmm. So is that the study, since it's the largest and probably the most robust compared to, say, rhesus monkeys uh, <laughs> or, you know, a, a PKPD data in adults of like, you know, 20 patients? This 07P4 was hundreds of patients, right? Um, so should we change our standard from 
0.1, well, first, should we change it to higher based off of all the smaller studies, or should we change it to less than 0.1 based off of this large O7P4 study? So I don't think we should necessarily change it to the higher levels. Whether we do 0.05 or 0.1, honestly, I think doesn't even matter. Agreed. The troughs are less important than the peak concentrations. And essentially what we're doing when we're checking asparaginase activity levels is, let's say you give a normal dose. Let's say you give 2,000 units per meter squared uncapped of PEG. What should your peak levels be? Like 1, 0. Yeah. 0.8 to 1.5. Yeah. Very yeah. high. Very high, right? So if your level is 0. 0.2 at that same time point, two days or three days after you give that dose, that same dose, is that good? No. So 0. 0. 0.2 <laughs> on day one, by definition, you still have asparagine oh, depletion. You're above 0.1. Yep. But that's a huge problem, right? You're, yep. You have significantly lower levels than normal, and you're clearing it way faster than you should. So this is probably a harbinger of inactivation, and you're not going to have activity of your drug. So I hate these dichotomous cutoffs, and we've made Agreed. our own too, right? Yeah. I think it's stupid. It leads people to not using their brains. You mm -hmm. can check a level whenever the hell you want to check a level. And Any day, anytime. Whatever is convenient for your patient. But check an early level, right? Check a peak concentration somewhere in that first week. And if it is in the normal range of 0 0.5, 0 0.1, up there, right, of what it should be based on what dose you gave, you're fine, right? Mm -hmm. You still have asparaginase activity. If your mm -hmm. level is very low, whether it be 0 0.1, 0 0.05, 0, you've got a problem and you probably need to switch products. Yep, 100%. So, so you're, you want a, a level anytime you could literally get it on day three you can get it on day 12 you can get it on day 14 you can get it, it after the infusion it doesn't matter but i think what our goal is is we want to ensure that our patients have complete asparagine depletion for at least 14 days mm -hmm. and so ideally you want to keep above that gold standard 0.1 uh arguably you could probably go a little bit lower but mm -hmm. you want it to stay above there for at least 14 days. Now, if you get a peak at, on, say, day 7 and your level is already 0 0.3, well, that's not far from your 0 0.1. And you still got two more, you know, another week another or two week. to go. Uh, it is very likely that you're inactivating uh, in that case. So, so think, in that case, you might check another level in a couple exactly. days or weeks, see where you're at. Yep, exactly. Uh, Bernie, one other point, and I, I, I apologize for going back, but I want to go back to the O7P4 because there's a lot of discordant information coming from that study that is getting uh, rewritten in multiple studies and even is inside the NCCN guidelines. They say that according to O7P4, that when you have a level that is, you know, between point I think it was 0.2 to 0.4, mm -hmm. that you start having asparagine repletion. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, our goal should actually be above 0 0.4 based off of 0.7P4. So how do, you, how do you reconcile the same data saying you have complete asparagine depletion when you're 0 0.02 or above, but then the same data at least what people are quoting, is saying that 
you're having asparagine repletion at levels that are below, below 0 0.4. Yeah, I, I don't honestly know how to interpret that data. I remember when we first looked at the curves mm -hmm. from that Angio Lilo paper in 2014, it made no sense to us mm -hmm. because somewhere in between 0.4 and 0.2, the asparagine levels went up. Now, is that because that's the average at those two time points at day yes. 21 and 28? Yep. Or is that because there were a couple of outliers? My suspicion is there were a couple of outliers that they then threw the data out, but I can't, I can't say for certain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, honestly, I think everybody's misinterpreting the graph. Yeah. I think, I think you're seeing that the that I think the, it's the average as, asparagine is starting to rise and but the it, it average actually, level at that time point so the average exactly. level let's say it's day 28 in the curve and yep. i don't remember the curve exactly but let's say yep. day 28 your average asparaginase level is 0 0.02 right and let's say all the patients that were around point or i'm sorry 0.2 let's say there's some patients that are 0 0.2 0 0.3 0 0.4 and all these patients have good asparagine depletion there's no asparagine mm -hmm. but there are also some patients below that right that have levels of 0 0.01 0 0.02 yep. and they have asparagine come back so if you plot asparagine concentrations at that time point you have an average asparaginase activity level and you have an average asparagine concentration and, and I think the second set of data that they presented us where they looked at patients that were less than 0.1 that showed that as long as you were above 0.05, you still had depletion. I think that's stronger than just eyeballing a curve Agreed. and interpreting average concentrations. 100%. I just wanted to bring it up because it's literally in the NCCN guidelines. I didn't even know it was in there. It's, it's it actually is. in there? Yes. I've asked multiple times for them to take it out or at least cite data that Ooh. supports this theory of 0.2 to 0.4 causes asparagine repletion it, it's it's both in the aya guideline nccn and the adult guideline or the pediatric uh as well so it needs to be taken out of or at least cited or show us what the data is because they're getting it from 07p4 and it's wrong we even thought that too when we looked at the graph wrote a letter to the editor archie blyer and susanna Kuntz and them they rebuttaled us and were like yeah guys you're wrong and so we were wrong like let's let's accept it so nccn then needs to realize that they're wrong with that as well and take it out and say you know 0 0.1 is is the gold standard we have no idea it's probably lower but we'll stick with 0 0.1 okay yeah. so that's the target 0 0.1 we talked about uh, it doesn't really matter when you get it, as long as you understand the, the PK of the asparaginase and you know where um, your level should be at that specific time. Um, but, you know, for the most part, we're saying, okay, if you want to dichotomize it, get a level on day seven. If you're above 0 0.5, you're very likely to have complete asparagine depletion for a nice long period of time, right? Um, but then the question, Bernie, is... Depending on your dose, right? Depending on your dep dose. Depend yes. If you're using, uh, you know, 3750, I think 0.5 and above is, 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 yeah. is, yeah. So, so but the, the big question here, and, and sorry, and then going back. So if you have 1,000 and you're, you're checking on day seven, if you gave 1,000 uh, units per meter squared, you're not going to have a peak of no. 0.5. You're going to have a peak of like 0 0.2, 0 0.3, uh, which is okay. And you're, you're the the tail end of it is likely going to have a, you know, day 14, you're going to have a level of 0 0.1. So, but the big question here, Bernie, is 
are we just over engineering all this? Is it because you know we're pharmacists? We uh, need to, you know, we need to uh, prove Gotta ourselves. Gotta check levels of everything, right? Right? Like God, vancomycin, aminoglycosides, heparin, Lovenox, like. Now asparaginase, come on. Like, are there any data that checking all these freaking levels are actually going to A, improve efficacy, or B, reduce toxicity for patients? No. <laughs> so the only, the data that we have, probably the best data that we have comes from Dana-Farber, um, the DFCI uh, 0001 trial that compared individualized doses of asparaginase to uh, a fixed dose of asparaginase. And the patients who got individualized dosing of asparaginase had an improved five-year disease-free survival compared to those patients who got fixed doses, despite the fact that the individualized dosing group actually ended up with lower asparaginase doses over time. And the reason for this is because in the individualized dosing group, they found 10% of patients who had an activation, who didn't achieve those peak concentrations in the asparagine depletion that we would have liked to see in clinical practice. Unfortunately, we don't use E. coli asparaginase anymore, mm -hmm. right? And what nope. would you say our rate of inactivation is in clinical practice with pegylated asparaginase, now that we've removed some immunogenicity with pegylating it? Yeah, I mean, we reviewed the literature extensively and it's all over the map. So yeah, it's bad. There, are, there are studies that suggest a 0% uh, mm -hmm. silent, silent inactivation, meaning you didn't have any symptoms and your drug just stopped working. Uh, so 0% up to, you know, maybe eight to 10% was like the higher Highest. end. But that was after uh, native, right? Yes, yes. And so I would say it's probably only occurring in a couple of percent. I think, you know, some of the, the newest data is coming from the Dutch group mm -hmm. where they said, I want to say it was like, you know, 10 to 15 percent had, uh, um, no, it was, it, 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 their, their numbers were weird. It was like 10 to 15 percent mm -hmm. had, um, let me pull up the paper because I, I don't know. This is my sleep deprivation here. So you continue talking, Bernie, and then I'll read to you exactly what Perfect. they're... Perfect. Here, uh, I found it. I found oh, it. Okay. Uh, you're fast. <laughs> yeah. So 10% developed a neutralizing hypersensitivity reaction to pegasparaginase, of which 40% were silent and activators. That's why I couldn't think of this because so it's 10%, so it's 40% of 10%. <laughs> 40% had a neutralizing hypersensitivity reaction. So that was allergy plus inactivation. Exactly. And only 4% of those were silent inactivation. Or exactly. Yes. So 40% of 10%. 4%. Okay. 4%. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's so, a weird so, way to put it. Yeah. 100%. But, um, you know, four percent that that is that is a, a low rate of inactivation. That's not the 10% that was oh. in Dana Farber. Um, but, in peds, when you're uh, playing with, um, you know, event-free survivals of 90% versus 88%, right? Um, that could be a difference maker, right? So if 4% are inactivating early on and you think that asparaginase is incredibly important, even if like 50% of your patients will do fine, that's still 2% that are going to relapse. And so now you're 88% 
of event-free survival now drops to 86. And so in peds, it makes a huge difference. In adults, I mean, God, we would, we would love to have any more percent, um, you know, increase in event-free survival. But like in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, we probably wouldn't even balk at like, you know, five to 10% difference because yeah. our, our, our event-free survival is just so poor, right? I mean, if you think about it, you, you described it perfectly. This is an intervention that costs less than a thousand dollars, right? A couple hundred bucks, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. We check so many damn labs in the hospital that are absolutely worthless, yep. including think about like Vanco AUC dosing. Like we do oh, so boy. much stupid shit that here's an intervention that maybe catches four percent of patients that have reduced activity of your drug that will improve their outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's hard yep. to not do it. I yep. think it's a low yield interact. It's a low yield intervention when we're spending, you know, fifty to a hundred k on everything else. Spending a hundred bucks on a disparagingness activity level, like nobody should complain about that. Yep, totally agree. So I think um, there are three utilities potentially okay. Okay. In, in getting TDM. One is identifying silent and activation, which to you, you have to decide, is it really worth it to check levels on every single patient for every single dose uh, for that, you know, four-ish percent or maybe zero mm-hmm. percent in some studies? But let's I say think it's it four, is. four to five yeah. percent. So, yeah. So, to you and I... Um, in, in resource-limited I, I, countries? Maybe not. Maybe maybe not. Um, so, so that's one utility is, is detecting silent inactivation. You could argue, hey, you know, why don't we just check it around dose two or dose mm-hmm. three? Sure. Um, but you know, all the other doses, your highest yield is likely going to be around dose two or three. Cause that's usually when most of the, the, the allergy occurs. And after that you tend to be out of the woods, but not perfectly out of yeah. the woods. So you could, if you want to significant gaps, yield. gaps in asparaginase administration. Yeah. Good point. So, so if you had it in, in, in say induction, uh, patient relapses years later, they come back and now, you know, they're yeah. relapse patient, maybe, maybe, maybe that now. big gap, um, so, yeah, I agree. Gaps are definitely important. Um, so the second utility, I would say, is identifying whether or not your patient has an antibody-mediated hypersensitivity that is neutralizing your asparaginase. And so it's similar to hypersen- uh, silent activation, but silent activation only happens in like 5% of patients, right? Overt allergy or infusion reactions happen in about 20 to 30% of patients, of which a small fraction of them are truly patients that inactivate their asparaginase. And so I would say a huge utility for everybody, including resource-constrained areas, is to check in in anybody that has an allergic, allergic reaction so that you can determine whether or not that patient truly needs Erwinia. And, and in resource-constrained um, places, it's really important because Erwinia costs much, 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 much more money than all of the TDM that you're going to be sending off for your entire hospital for years to come just for one patient. So I would say those are your two utilities. Uh, the third utility is reducing doses and ensuring that with the reduced dose that you're able to achieve complete asparagine depletion for 
whatever time period you believe is needed, two weeks, three weeks. Uh, we generally in high-risk patients prefer two weeks of depletion. We give a 1,000. We check levels. Uh, if their level is... Uh, very low, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll bump it up to, to 1250. If it's just like, you know, right under that 0 0.1. 5. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, even 0 0.08, 0 0.07, whatever, just give, just give the thousand, not a big deal. You don't have to, you know, give Over higher and higher doses. It. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, if you're hovering around the 0 0.4, 0 0.5, that's a patient I'd probably increase uh, to 1250 or so. So, but then the, the elephant in the room is, does that improve toxicity? Do we have any data, Bernie, that reducing the doses and using a TDM-based approach actually reduces efficacy, uh, sorry, reduces, reduces uh, toxicity, toxicity yeah. and, and um, maintains efficacy? Because you're reducing a dose, you're reducing the duration of asparagine depletion. Are you also uh, potentially reducing the efficacy? I think this goes back to what I mentioned earlier. Asparaginase was developed for pediatric patients. We have no idea what the right dose was. We never did a study to find out what is the appropriate dose of asparaginase. We have no freaking clue what we're doing. So honestly, I don't think anything is truly wrong. And when you look at outcomes in regimens that use lower doses, like uh, the Dutch, where they use individualized dosing, and they even give doses as low as 500 units per meter squared. When mm -hmm. you look at the UK, the UK gives 1,000 units per meter squared. When you look at outcomes with a Winnie asparaginase that deplete for 14 days, these outcomes look no worse than when I blow out people's livers with asparaginase using 2,000 units per meter squared plus of asparaginase therapy. And so, so if efficacy outcomes are no worse, why would I give more of a drug that could potentially cause a life-threatening life catastrophic event? Because it's the FDA-approved package <laughs> insert. I could give two <laughs> shits about a package insert. I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, your point is well taken is that multiple, multiple cooperative groups use much, much, much lower doses and their, their outcomes in pediatric patients who are the most vulnerable to have reduced efficacy with less pegasparaginase, um, their outcomes are just as good as those groups that are using 2,500 no cap. Uh, so I agree with you. Efficacy I mean, is likely not, not any different. We arbitrarily reduced it to a vial. How scientific yeah. is that? Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> just give a vial of this drug, right? Like, come on. Uh, <laughs> totally, totally agree. Uh, so then the, the question is, well, is reducing the dose to say a thousand, is that going to reduce the toxicities? I don't know. I don't have data to suggest that. Um, you know, there's some data from Dana Farber, obviously, of yeah. too high of a dose, too close together is bad, right? So yes. they had to reduce the dose. But is there truly dose that a thousand is better? There's also some Nordic data that suggested that giving lower doses maybe reduce the incidence of pancreatitis and osteonecrosis. Yep. Um, and globally, I think if you look at data like 10403 with a over a third of patients having grade three, four hepatotoxicity, that's not what we see in these other studies that use a thousand units per meter squared in adult patients. Yep. Totally agree. And then some naysayers will also say, well, look at the, the Dutch children's mm -hmm. oncology, oncology group, which you 
suggested. They're they're using individualized doses. They're using mm-hmm. doses. They're checking levels, just trying to maintain above 0.1, and their doses are coming all the way down to say 400, 500 units per per meter squared. And in their studies, they found absolutely no abrogation of the toxicity. But I think there's some caveats, right? Number one, these are pediatrics. Yeah. They are not going to see the same toxicity. <laughs> you can <give> them anything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and I mean, we know that even from like St. Jude, like they're oh, giving yeah. them what over three thousand units per meter squared, and not really seeing, you know, much difference in toxicity. I don't, you know, compared to twenty five hundred, uh, or maybe they did. I don't know. Um, but uh, the point I was trying to make was um, they they didn't show any reduced toxicities because they're they're children and they're less vulnerable to these toxicities but also they have several weeks upon weeks upon weeks of complete asparagine depletion yes. so yes. so th- that is not the same as what we're using in the bfm backbones Great of clgb point. cog so like yes they're giving 500 say every two weeks but it's they still have 30 freaking weeks of depletion <laughs> exactly yeah yeah i don't i don't know i don't remember i don't their know protocol. if it's exactly they're, 30 weeks but it's a freaking but it's, lot it's like 20 some weeks or so. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. Whereas our depletion is two weeks at a time or three weeks at a time. Periodically. For periodically. Seven doses ish. Exactly. In or three. Exactly. So I, I, I do believe that lower doses reduce the toxicities. Um, and I do think if you're going to use lower doses, you, you really should do TDM because there's going to be a proportion of patients that are not going to have. Uh, achieve our target of 0.1. Um, and so you might have to modify their dose. For every NGS you send off that probably doesn't change your management, you should send an activity level. There you go. Uh, right, all right, so we should, probably, uh, we should probably summarize our, our key points here. So what are our key points? And then we'll call it a day. All right, Bernie, you're always great with summary, so I'll let you have it. Gosh. And then if you miss anything, I'll say something. All right, key point number one. Dose asparaginase appropriately. Amen. Do not give your adult patients 2,500 units per meter squared uncapped. Think carefully about what risk factors they have for toxicity. Are they Mm -hmm. obese? Are they of older age? In those patients, consider giving reduced doses like we see in the UK, like we see in these other protocols from other European countries. And I think the second key point we made was on activity levels and when to check them. I think the, the key points are definitely check them after every allergic reaction to determine whether it's um, antibody mediated or not so that you know when to switch products. You could consider checking in all patients because of that small risk of silent inactivation. And again, if you are using reduced doses, you should check to see how long you're depleting for and aim for your optimal duration of depletion, which for us is approximately two weeks of depletion. Beautiful. So wonderfully summarized, (laughs) Bernie. Thank you. All right. Well, this was fun. I love asparaginase. I love talking about this stuff. It's a good topic, and uh, it was good good chat. This was the most sophisticated talk I've had in weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Enzo's not talking about asparaginase yet? No, no, I'm, he's, he babbles a lot, um, but he's, he can't quite say asparaginase yet. He will soon. <laughs> All right. All right. Maybe that'll be his first word. I think it's, uh, it's time for bed. <laughs> yes. It's definitely my, past my bedtime. So thanks, Bernie, for getting me out. Uh, 
having me have a drink and, and just nerding out. So. All right. Cheers, everybody. Ciao.